This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for the respectful and courageous discussion of difficult subjects. My guest tonight is Christiane Wells. We're going to be talking about bipolar disorder and addiction. Christiane Wells, MSW, is the author of Magical Shrinking, Stumbling Through Bipolar Disorder. Diagnosed at 19 years old with bipolar disorder, her first book, No Guarantees, A Young Woman's Fight to Overcome Drug and Alcohol Addiction, was published soon after. She is now married, she has a five-year-old son, and is able to control her mental illness with medication and therapy. She's currently in graduate school getting her doctorate in psychology. Welcome to Safe Space, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start by asking you if you could begin by telling me a little bit about how you came to understand that you had bipolar disorder. Sure. Um, when I was in high school, I started having symptoms that, you know, were of a mood disorder, and my behavior was really erratic, and I was very impulsive. I had a lot of mood swings. I would go from being depressed to, like, on top of the world. And when I was 18, I had my first manic episode, which, of course, I didn't know that's what it was at the time. But I wrote a book in two months and mm. didn't really need to sleep. And um, because I wasn't on any medication, that episode lasted until I started in college. And about a year later, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And just a few months after that, my book was published. So it was a, it was a really crazy time for me. And the, public, the publication of the book, I think, triggered more mania for me. And still unmedicated, I... Um, I just I had a really difficult time because my mood swings were out of control and I tried to use marijuana as a way to control it and then cocaine and yeah I just, I just thought that drugs would help and they never did but um when I was about 20 I started having auditory hallucinations and right I don't know when I was about 21 I had two serious suicide attempts and right after that I ended up in the hospital for the first time of many times throughout my early 20s. I've been hospitalized about 10 times altogether. And after that first hospitalization, it was just one medication after another, therapists, doctors, and it was really hard. I really lost the sense of myself, and I didn't know um, what to do about it. Nothing seemed to work, and I just I just decided that drugs might help me, illicit drugs, so I continued to smoke marijuana all the time. I um, I smoked crack, and nothing nothing helped. I went to therapists, and it was useless. Um, and so that was well into my 20s, and I went through a really tough time where I was, I had just, I felt like I gave up, and I just started smoking crack all the time. And I continued to see my doctor, and I took my medication. But there there came a point where I was like, you know, I need to have a real life. Like, I, I just need to change. And so I decided to stop smoking crack. I moved um, from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. And I went to a doctor, and I stopped smoking crack. And I still smoked marijuana, but I was doing better. I got 
a job and I met my husband and I moved in with him and just worked on being stable after that and that was 11 years ago and I've had a lot of issues during that time because I still I'm, I have the bipolar disorder it's, it doesn't go away and so I struggle but things have gotten way better in the past decade um, just through a lot of I don't know self reflection and going to therapy and, and working things out learning how to to live with this and also live in the world and at this point I am pretty stable you know I mean I take my medication and I have a great therapist and I have a great life I am very fortunate and I know that um, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to do what I did so it sounds like there was really a turning point when you moved from Las Vegas to LA it sounds like you decided to stop smoking crack and you wanted to get a real life and I'm curious about what led up to that. I mean, how did that become a turning point? Well, it, it's interesting because I, it was a point where I was finally accepting that I had bipolar disorder, and, but I was more than that. And I started to think all my friends from growing up, from college, they were all getting married and having kids, and I was just broken I felt like I was never going to get better and I was damaged but I thought maybe I'm not <laughs> you know maybe I do have a chance to change and I think that that's what sparked it was the whole idea that you know all these people around me can do this maybe I if maybe I can too and um and really smoking crack takes a lot out of you it's um it's really tough and so when I decided to I, I just got tired of that and I said you know I need to stop this and in the move to my parents were moving to LA and so it was a perfect opportunity for me to go with them and I was lucky that they were willing to take me into their home uh, you know I understand that the cravings for crack are really really intense was it hard for you to stop it was um I really loved to smoke crack it's it's really, it's hard to explain to someone who has never fell in love with a drug, but it it was it was very intense and it was hard to give it up because there was a part of me that didn't know if I could live without it, but at the same time I didn't think that I could continue that life without dying or going to prison and I I didn't want that at that point. No, I, I right. So I, I was really struck by what you said a minute ago that you felt like you were damaged and then you really wondered, well, maybe I'm not. And I'm curious, do you feel like other people helped give you that message about yourself or how did you, because that's such a, it feels like such a pivotal way of changing how you feel toward yourself. What do you think helped you see yourself as not damaged or as having the potential to heal? Well, it's funny because I I would say until about five years ago I still felt that way to some extent. What really helped me get out of the whole I'm a damaged person or I'm an outsider and I'll never be a part of the mainstream was when I went back to college when I was 29. And um, what happened was I 
I was in class. I was older than the kids. You know, I was at a community college, and I just started, like, sharing in class about myself. And I found that people were really receptive to what I had to say, and they liked me even though they were hearing these things about me, that I have bipolar disorder, that I used to smoke crack. And I found that people liked me, and maybe I wasn't as messed up as I thought. And then I had a child, and people saw me as a parent, and and that was shocking. And so all these things. And then I, you know, and I, after the community college, I went to Cal State Northridge in California, and then I went to the University of Denver, got my degree in social work. And all throughout school, people were really welcoming, really great about, you know, um, accepting me for who I for who I am and I appreciated that and I think that's what helped me get over that feeling part of what's so striking to me you know I I do this show partly because I'm really interested in finding ways to reduce shame and reduce stigma and what I'm hearing you say is that you had the courage to to share who you were when you were 29 you went back to school you told people these quite risky very vulnerable things and, you know, you were met with people liking you back, which is so great. But I'm struck at your courage to begin with in, in revealing yourself and being so honest. And what do you think helped you do that? <laughs> I think that I just, um, I didn't think. <laughs> Funny, I would just, <laughs> you know, in class, if if uh, someone, you know, when I was taking, I, I majored in sociology. So if a professor would say something that I related to or I had had an experience with it I would just shoot my hand up and and talk about it and it it was just so easy to do <laughs> and it and no professors ever discouraged me and people were were always really cool and they it's like you know they were so shocked because it's something that most people don't experience mm. you know it it was um it it didn't feel like it was brave at the time <laughs> so it, it it felt easy at the time. I'm so glad for you. So <laughs> I want to ask you a little bit about medicine because, um, you know, in reading your book, it's quite a story of, you know, being tried on this and stopping it and being tried on this and stopping it, and which is, in my experience, the, the case for almost everybody who has bipolar disorder. There's really an intense struggle, and for often for many years, to come to terms with having to take medicine. And I'm curious about um, your relationship to medicine now. Uh, do Is it difficult to take? Are there side effects? You know, how do you feel about your medicine now? Now it doesn't bother me so much. In the beginning, because my symptoms were so acute, I was on a lot of medication. And the biggest problem was the side effects. And for for doctors to be saying, hey, you're going to have to take these drugs for the rest of your life. And I was thinking, well, this is terrible. Am I always going to, the weight gain and the acne and the drowsiness, it, it seemed like it would I would be better off dead than to have that going on. And so that was the real struggle with medication, which is why I kept going on and off of it, because it just seemed like to me that doctors were grasping at straws and saying, well, here, let me throw this at you, let me throw that at you, and it, it seems so unscientific, but because I was using drugs and I, w I wasn't making it easy, and yeah. it was when I stopped using drugs and my symptoms were better, 
and I was able to get on medication. And, and also, I mean, in the last decade, there's been way huge improvements in, in medication. So now what I'm on, I'm only on a couple drugs compared to several, which was the way it was when I was in my 20s. And so now they don't, they don't bother me. I don't feel like I have any negative side effects. I just take them, and it works. Isn't that great? I mean, it sounds like you were in almost a catch-22 situation that because you were doing drugs and, you know, because you weren't doing well and taking care of yourself, you needed more, and therefore the side effects were worse. But it sounds like as you are better, in fact, you need fewer medicines, which is sort of right. striking. Yeah. So um, I want to ask you about a, a whole different subject now, which is kind of a way that it sounds like you found to cope with a very painful childhood, especially it sounds like a very absent relationship with your father and um, in your book you describe this kind of alternate universe that you created in your mind where you had a, a father figure this Uncle Richard from a television show and I wondered if you'd say a little bit about about that alternate world that you lived in sometimes and about how it helped you sure I developed this when I was a kid as as a coping mechanism and it, it was tough when I was a kid, um, it's hard to have a father who you feel like doesn't really care about you. And of course, I wasn't in his head, so I don't know what he was really thinking at the time. But I did develop this, and it was like it was like having an imaginary life in my head, and yet it felt as real as my real life. But for years, I. It, it felt so crazy that I just tried to pretend like it didn't even exist. And um, in in high school especially, it became really difficult to reconcile what was going on in my real life and what was going on in this world that I created for myself. And they they kind of go parallel. And it's been that way my whole life where there's this parallel life to the life that I live. And it it's just it became more seamless as I got older and I was probably better able to like cognitively deal with it and integrate it into my, my life. And so basically it's just been this coping mechanism that I've always gone to and it's, it kind of sharpened as I, I got older and it was, you know, really helped me through some really difficult times. Um, especially with all the hospitalizations and in the drugs and that whole lifestyle um it was i really needed to escape from that and it it gave me a way to deal and it still gives me a way to deal um at times but as i've gotten older it's it's not as big of a part of my life and at times when i'm very stressed it, it doesn't seem to help anymore um mm. and i've experienced that when i had a um, hard time a difficult time working and uh, just at times of high stress. It, I mean, I was struck in reading your book about how different psychiatrists over the years, we know some felt it was delusional, some thought that it um, was dissociative, and there were sort of these negative pathological labels put on it. But in reading your story, it sounds like it really basically helped you. It was a way to escape, it was a way to feel loved. Um, and I'm curious, do you feel like it had any downsides for you? I really don't feel like it had a downside except with my first book. Um, my first book, I was really, well, you know, it, it's hard because I was, I was really ill at the time when I wrote it, even though it didn't seem like that. 
and I was having a very difficult time with reality and the AU. And so the AU being the alternative universe. Yes. Yeah, in the book, it, it it sort of blends together, and I, it it made me really, I don't know, like ashamed of that book for a long time. But now I I understand more where it came from, and so that's really the only downside. Everything else, I feel like it, it's been a positive. And, and what was the shame? Help me understand that. I'm sorry. What was the shame when you said it made you ashamed oh. of that book? Um. Well, the shame was that. <laughs> It's when you write a book about your life and you've lived with all these people in the real world and they are thinking, how did, how did this happen? How did I not know about this? And I, did, I didn't really think about it until I was, uh, I don't know, about 21. And I thought, wow, you know, these things happened in my head and they felt so real to me, but they they didn't happen to people in my life it was it was very confusing and it it was shameful because i there was no way to explain that to people without feeling even more ashamed because mm-hmm. then i would have to explain that i have this whole life in my head and so it kind of snowballed and it wasn't until i wrote magical shrinking that i really was able to understand it more and and feel comfortable with it it, and you explain it so clearly. I mean, it makes so much sense in your book. So I want to I want to shift gears now to another subject that's sort of related to shame, and as you mentioned about work. And um, I know that you keep a blog, and I actually uh, wondered maybe if you could give the what is the address for your blog in case people want to follow you. Um, people can go to magicalshrinking dot com. Great. So or I, my or my full name christianewells.com. dot com. They both will take you to the same place. Great. So in reading it, you know, I understand that right now you're getting your doctorate and you're also in disability because it's been very hard for you to um, maintain work. That's been a struggle. And you mentioned that there's been some controversy over that. And I wondered if you could explain a little bit about that. Sure. When I, I recently wrote an article that was in the Huffington Post, and I, I tell my story about what, it, what it's like to have bipolar disorder. And I mentioned in the story that... Um, that I'm on disability, but that I'm getting my doctorate and I've struggled with work. And a lot of people posted comments that said, hey, this is crazy. Like, how can you be getting your PhD and, you know, and and collect money from the government? And it's really very different. Um, First of all, you pay into Social Security. It's, um, It's disability insurance. And I get reviewed every, you know, in the the reviewers have even said to me that going to school is different than working and the stress is different and and clearly I do a better I do a, a good job with going to school better than I do with work and um it's hard to articulate what it is that's really tough about work for me but it's it's really I I can't deal with the structure and the stress of a 9 to 5 job and I think that that sounds crazy to most people because, I mean, let's face it, the majority of people can, can work and, and do it. And I struggle. And there's just, it's like I have this short circuit in my brain that, that just makes it too hard. And so I'm, I'm looking to the future thinking that 
teaching and writing are are what might work for me because those aren't um, super structured. I mean, sure, you have you know classes to teach and and deadlines for writing, but it's it's different. And so I'm hoping that that's going to work out for me. I hope so too. I mean, what a great use of your time on disability, though, getting a doctorate. Seems. Yeah, to I me. wish people would think of it that way. <laughs> So I want to ask you, you know, you, you are a veteran of the mental health system um, on many levels, and I'm curious to ask you about, you know, if you could teach the next generation of mental health practitioners about what not to do, what you learned by negative experience, what would you say, what are some things that you really wish mental health clinicians understood were not helpful to you? Sure. One thing that right off the bat is um is bullying your clients um i had a lot of doctors and therapists who tried to bully me into doing things like taking my medications or i also had people shame me try to shame me into doing things and that couldn't be a, a worse way to go about it what would be an example of that well an example is when i the first time i was in the hospital I under and I understand in retrospect that they were trying to get me to understand the the gravity of the situation, but the attending doctor threatened me a couple times with going to court to force me to take medication and you know having a longer stay in the hospital and it was so it it made it so much worse for me. It's like you're already in the hospital, you don't mm-hmm. need someone bullying you into into doing it there's you know if someone had just spoken to me about it in a more i don't know kind way i think it would have it would have been way better it feels like locked inpatient psych units are rife with power struggles often between clinicians and patients about passes and going out and taking medicines and when you can leave and it's it's such a setup for that in many ways it is, and that led to another problem, which was, you know, you're in the hospital, and it's it's a safe place, and you know it's a safe place. And for me, you know, I just I would clown around and try to make it the best that I could, and this often um, got me in trouble with the people who worked there and the staff because they you know, they were like, well, you know, I think that you have borderline personality disorder because of the way that you're acting. And and to be told that you have a personality disorder, you know, which people are, they, they treat you negatively. I did a paper once on sexism and borderline personality disorder. And it's something that, that basically people are like, hey, you're never going to get better from, you know, sorry that you have this, you know, this flaw in your personality. And in retrospect, I think about it, and I'm like, wow, I was just trying to make the best of this time without feeling incredibly depressed. And I, the last thing you need is people trying to shame you into changing your behavior because they are telling you that you have, like, a characterological flaw. It, strikes, it comes back to where we started about feeling damaged, that it ends up feeding that sense of damage which was right. so much at the heart of not doing well. Interesting. Totally. Yeah. Anything else that you want people to know about what doesn't work? Um, over-medicating, I think, is a, is a big problem and has become a problem with kids, too. 
I feel like the when you're throwing too many medications at someone, it, it gets too difficult to see what's really going on. And I I think it would be a good idea to, you know, just just kind of not go like two or three drugs deep on someone right away, but to see what happens with each one, as long as it's safe. Obviously, sometimes it's not safe, and but that generally means that you need to be in the hospital. Right. So, Chris, we we're, we're don't have much time left. I do want to make sure that we switch to what really has helped you, because it's clear that, you know, you've come through such a difficult time, and you're doing so well now, and uh, what would you say some of the ingredients of that are that it's important to understand? Well, I think the biggest thing is that I always had people who never gave up on me. And having a support system is huge. And, um, you know, I always had the support of my, my parents and my grandparents, no matter what happened with anybody else. And without that, I'm not sure I could have made it. Also, um, compliance with treatment. Once I stopped trying to take myself on and off medication, once I started, um, you know, accepting the fact that I had bipolar disorder and, and not using drugs, th- things got better. Also, taking care of myself, not continuing with destructive behaviors. Um, I had a period where I was bulimic. And when I stopped doing things that hurt myself, that made a huge difference. And I know it seems obvious, but it's it's not as you know obvious as people think. Also, learning to you know sleep properly. Not I can stay up all night pretty easily, and I can't let myself do that. I need to sleep, and also I need to eat well. And so those are things that are really important. Um, and and really stability is is huge and living with my husband has been really stable and I I don't know what I would have done without him he really helped change my life Hmm. you mentioned when we talked beforehand that um, sometimes when people ask you you know if they're looking for an answer for themselves you say they're not always willing or ready to hear what you have to say which is that despite you but despite having all those useless therapists in the beginning that you really believe in combining therapy and medication. I wonder if you could say just a word about that before we end. Sure. I just, I think that a lot of people look to medication as the total answer and that they're going to start taking a pill and be fixed. And you can't get into that, you know, this is going to fix me thing because it's not just a pill. You need to work on yourself. And there's a lot of, things you can take care of in therapy like learning to 